This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Well, good morning. Great to be together uh, this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, if you'd open up to 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. Just take that Bible out. And I'd encourage you to do that, uh, if I could be so bold. Uh, Because as we walk through this passage today, we're going to be, we're going to kind of be building a bridge over 2,000 years of human history to relate to a situation that is not, uh, that's very foreign to us. So it'll be helpful to track verse by verse so you'll know uh, where we are. And uh, if you are new, it's, it's great to have you here. You're in the, coming in in the middle of a, of, a, of a series. My name is Craig and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're just teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. So kind of how we do is we just walk through a section at a time. Last week we talked about singles and what's the single life to be about. And this week we're gonna talk about something that has to do with loving others. And so we just walk through the book and whatever, wherever we land on a particular Sunday, that's the agenda. So we're letting that, uh, that the text set the agenda for us. Um, if you grab one of those Bibles, if you look to page 557, you'll find 1 Corinthians 8, and uh, we're going to cover the whole chapter today. Uh, and so let's read. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 8. This is God's holy word. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, or no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning that the truth of this scripture, the truth of your word would speak to us. We believe that your word is living, it is active. We believe that your word is God-breathed, it is inspired. And we pray today that you would speak to us through your word, that you would challenge us. I pray most of all that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ in this text and that you would melt our hearts with love because of the love you've shown us, that we might extend that love to others. 
So Lord, speak to us, change us, give us hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this passage, Paul is addressing something that is a really big issue in uh, this church in Corinth. This is in the middle of the first century. Corinth is a city in Greece, and Paul founded this church and now is gone and is writing back to them. So it's been about five years since he started the church, and some of the people in the church are facing a real problem. And here's the root of it. It's how do I relate to my old life? How do I relate to the life I lived before I became a Christian? And so here he is addressing meat that is offered to idols. Now, if you're not, if you're here and not, you are not a Christian, um, or you're not very familiar with the Bible, you may instantly think this confirms all my suspicions that the New Testament is irrelevant and that it really has very little practical application for my life. And if that's your thought, I completely understand how in the world are we sitting here uh, in the year 2017 talking about a, from our vantage point, primitive, superstitious people, and uh, they're sacrificing animals to any number of gods. How is that relevant to us? Well, here's what we're going to do. I want to walk through the chapter and try to understand what exactly is happening here, and then try to go below the surface a little bit and see what principles are in play in this passage. And then let's see if those principles aren't relevant. I think you'll find that they are entirely relevant for us today. The circumstances may be very foreign and historic, but the principles involved are very living and very relevant today. So here's what I want to start with. And I'm going to do a fair bit of explanation here because this topic is going to come up again in chapter 10, meat offered to idols, and it's going to really be the underlying theme in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So when I get to it again, I'm going to talk a lot more about application and I'll feel less need to kind of develop what's going on. But I want to today talk a lot about what's going on and then bring some application as well. So let's start... um, with uh, this idea of food offered to idols. Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Um, This is a question they're asking. We're in a section of the letter where the Corinthians have asked Paul questions, and every time he says now concerning, he's moving on to a new topic and addressing something that they have written him about. He's away from them, and they've written with a series of questions. And so there's a group of people in this church that want to know what about food that is offered to idols and specifically meat. If we look at verse 13 at the end of the chapter, he says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Food and meat are parallel there. He's saying the whole thing, the same thing. The whole passage is really about meat that is offered to idols. So here's a few things that are important to understand. First of all, eating meat would have been an uncommon experience in first Corinthians, uh, in, in first century Corinth, rather. It would be far far less common than it is today. And in particular, the poor would rarely have had an opportunity to eat meat. So this would have been something very rare for for the poor. The wealthy could afford meat and would, uh, would be more familiar with it, but certainly the poor would not. Now, what's so drastically different about their culture and ours is the source for meat. So if you want meat, uh, you just go down to Uh, Kroger or Tom Thumb or wherever, Costco, wherever you buy your meat, a meat market, you just go and you buy it. But in first century Corinth, 
almost all of the meat originated from the temple. All of the meat came from the various temples that were devoted to the various gods because all of the meat came from animals that had been sacrificed to a god. So when an animal was sacrificed, when a worshiper brought one of their animals and it was sacrificed to a god in a temple, here's what happened. A little bit of the meat of the animal was burned. A little bit of the meat, kind of like a tip to your server, a little bit of the meat went to the priest who offered the offering. Um, uh, Some of the meat was consumed by the worshipers in the temple, uh, and it was understood that you were sort of eating this meat in the presence of the God that you gathered before. So it was kind of a communal meal, religious in nature, communal meal before the God. The rest of the meat was then butchered and taken to the marketplace and it was sold for people to buy and eat. So all meat had connection to pagan ritual and pagan religion. Now the second thing that's important to know that's going on here in this passage in particular, not as much in chapter 10, but here, is that the temples were a center of life. And there was multiple temples in Corinth, but the centers were the temple of life. So the, te- the, the, uh, the, the vice versa, the, the temple was the center of life. So each temple had multiple banquet rooms around it. Uh, one temple that's been excavated had 40 dining rooms. Uh, around the center of the temple uh, from Corinth in the first century. And so these rooms were used for non-religious purposes as well. Uh, Wedding banquets were held in there, uh, funerals were held, um, social functions such as the trade guilds gathered there. That might be like a union workers or something in our culture, or even like a business meeting, a network meeting, something like that. So they would gather in the temple and eat in the dining rooms as well. So not everything was overtly religious, but everything was somewhat religious because all of the meat came from sacrifice to idols. So here's the question that these new Christians are asking. These new Christians are wanting to know, is it okay to eat meat that is offered to a false god? Is that acceptable? Is it okay to eat it in the temple in a religious service? As a Christian, can you go to a temple and in a worship service to another god eat meat? Can you do that? Is it okay to eat meat at a temple when it's not associated with a religious service? So if your trade guild, if the carpenters of Corinth are gathered together and having a meeting and eating, can you do that if it's not overtly religious? Would that be acceptable? Is it okay to to go to a neighbor's house who's a non-believer and eat meat at his house, her house, that they bought at the marketplace that is the meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Is that acceptable? Is it acceptable for you personally to go to the marketplace and buy meat and take it home and privately, without anyone knowing, secretively eat it, uh, or not so secretively eat it in your home? Is that allowed? Is there any situation in which a Christian can eat meat in first century Corinth that has been offered to idols? And so Paul is answering that question in this chapter. And here's his answer, yes, but. That's his answer, yes, but. And that's the outline for today's message. Point number one is yes, but, verses one to three. Point number two is yes, 
verses 4 through 6. Point number three is but, verses 7 through 13. So you have this outline memorized. Yes, but. Yes, but. That's the outline for today. So let's start with number one, yes, but. Now concerning, verse 1, food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. That's the first thing. All of us, let's just stop there. All of us possess knowledge. So you'll see in your Bible that's in quotation marks because likely what's happening there is that's a line from the Corinthians. All of us possess knowledge. So Paul's interacting with what they have said. There's two groups that he's addressing in this passage. One group he calls the weak. In verse 9, but take care that it is this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So there's people in the church he's going to call the weak, and they're weak because their conscience is weak. We'll see what that means in a minute. By implication, we'll call the other group the strong. He doesn't call them that, but if one group's the weak, the opposite of that's the other group. I'm just going to call them the strong. So he is quoting the strong. The strong have asked him a question. Is, we all know that, that we all possess knowledge in, in, uh, regarding idols. What is that knowledge? Look down at verse 4. As to, eating, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. So the strong are saying, here's what we all know. Idols are not real. They're imaginary. The, the false gods are non-existent. They're imaginary, and there's only one God, and we worship him. So it's pretty easy to piece together the argument of the strong, what they're asking Paul about. They're saying, look, Paul, um, about eating meat offered to idols, all Christians know that these various gods and these various temples are all fake. They are fake gods. They don't really exist. There's only one God who is our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So eating meat offered to non-existent gods uh, really isn't a problem, right? I mean, in what way would meat be hindered if it's been offered to a deity that is the figment of the imagination of the worshiper? I mean, you had to make the statue. A human makes the statue and everyone bows to the statue. That's not real. So so given that, it must be okay to eat. And Paul agrees with their doctrine, by the way. This is the yes, but, but yes, that they have accurate knowledge. The strong have an accurate theological knowledge about the nature of idols and the nature of God. They are believing the right thing. So at one level, Paul can say, yes, of course, there's no problem eating meat that's been offered to gods that don't exist. Non-existent gods can't spiritually taint meat. If you're eating some goat meat that was offered to an idol, there are not going to be demons crawling around in the goat meat as if somehow it's tainted by what happened to it before. So of course, that's true. The answer is yes, your doctrine is is right. But doctrinal accuracy without love will, he says later in the chapter, destroy your brother. So yes, you're right doctrinally, it's okay, but here's what's happening. You're not loving others. Your, your knowledge, verse 1, this, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. <clears throat> so what he's saying is you're, <clears throat> you believe something that is true, but because you believe it, you are inflated. 
your mind, your head, how you view yourself is inflated. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He's saying that just because you think you know this truth about idols and God, and you are right, by the way, but just because you think that, the result has been not that you're loving other people because love would build up people, but it's just inflated you. You are, I love this image, you are puffed up. It's a visual image. It's a metaphor for being arrogant. You're proud. You're arrogant with your knowledge. You're puffed up. You're inflated. Whenever time I've read that passage, I've always thought about the very dated, very dated movie. But the, the movie Ghostbusters, where there's that scene where the, the stay-puffed marshmallow man, who's like 100 feet tall, starts walking into the city, and he's this puffed-up individual. And as this puffed-up individual walks into the city, he's just destroying New York with every step. And what's so, what's so telling and makes this illustration I'm giving you all the more compelling and potentially life-changing is that as he's walking around, Bill Murray says to him as he takes a step, no one destroys a church in my city. He evidently steps on a church and he takes his ray out and he shoots him and then we have a roasted marshmallow. But what is powerful about that is it's the picture. It's these strong people sort of walking through the church with their knowledge and they're destroying, destroying the church. That's what's happening here. Love strengthens others, but knowledge divorced from love just puffs up. Paul's not against knowledge, but he's against knowledge that doesn't result in love for others. If knowledge results in look at what I know and look at what I can do and look at what freedoms I have because of what I know, then it's not biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge will always issue forth in love. If you think you know it, you don't really know it. He's basically saying, if you think you're something, you're not. If you think you're something, you are not. Yes, you're right about God and idols, but that's not enough. You must consider your brothers and sisters. And this is where this has been so helpful. If I could just place us in this book, in this series, our theme for the ministry year has been build community. And this series is called Together because every week, week in and week out, we are seeing application from the text about how are we to relate together as a church. And here's one of those, that if we just become you know, uh, depositories of knowledge, if we just are just receiving knowledge and we're just proud of what we know, we're just secure in what we know, we just think we sort of know what we need to know, he says, you don't know anything if that's where you are. If we're not, if what we're learning about Jesus isn't transforming how I'm relating to the person in the pew next to me, in the living room next to me in community group on Wednesday night, uh, with the student next to me in the square on Wednesday night, with, with in serving in the children's ministry this morning, if it's not changing the way I relate with other people, then my knowledge is doing me more harm than good. So this idea of building community with weak and strong here, it really ties into our theme for the whole year. Okay, so yes, but, yes, you're right, but it needs to be loving. Number two, he's going to go and emphasize the truth of what they believe. And the second point is going to be yes. So in chapter four, I'm sorry, verse four, he does say, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, that there's no God but one. So that is all true. He's going to agree with them and he's going to go farther. Four, verse five, although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, 
Yet for us, there is one God. So he's agreeing with all of them. They're probably saying there's many gods, many lords. These are in quotes. They're probably saying that. He takes it further. Yes, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he's telling them, look, yes, you are right. There are many gods in the city. There are statues wherever you go. You can't even eat meat without it being connected somehow to pagan religion. Yes, we live in a very uh, God's uh, idol drenched community is where they live. And there are many lords. It's interesting, by this time, the Caesars, because Corinth is under Roman rule, so the Caesars were beginning to call themselves lords and were beginning to require uh, a sacrifice, not an animal sacrifice, but requiring a sacrifice of worship. Uh, with the confession, the creed, Caesar is Lord. And so this became an issue for Christians to say Caesar is Lord when in fact he is not only Jesus is Lord. So there's many lords, but he said, we know there's one God. He's the father from whom we exist. We exist from him. Everything is from him. The animals that are being slain are from God. He provides the meat as a gift. It's actually from him. Uh, everything is from him. Everything is to him. We are to live all of our lives to him, for him, for his glory. This is very much like Romans 11, that we are to live, we live from him, we are to live to him, and through Jesus we exist. So we live united with Christ through his power, through his reign, connected to him. So yes, we believe in the one God. Yes, you have sound theology. Yes, there is no problem eating, uh, technically eating meat offered to gods that don't exist. Yes, 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 that is all accurate. And yes, he goes further, we live for this God who created all and redeemed us. Yes, 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 but. Point three is but, and this is where we get chat, uh, verses seven through 13. Verse seven, however... However, yes, this is all true. However, not all possess this knowledge. The exact opposite of what the strong say. Look at verse 1. The strong say, all of us possess this knowledge. Arrogance will always say, everybody knows. We all know. Love will consider others. What do or don't they know? Where are they coming from? What is their experience? Their background may be different than mine. The arrogant always says, I know this, we know this, we're all in this together. The humble, the loving says, people come with differing life stories, differing backgrounds, differing knowledge. He goes right to background. Look what he says next. But some, through their former associations with idols, eat food as really being offered to an idol. This is the beginning of love. Love says, what is his background? What has shaped her that causes her to see things perhaps differently than I do? This is true culturally. This is true racially. This is true religiously from people with differing religious backgrounds. The starting point is, I know the Bible. That's what the Bible says. We all know that's true, right? That is the height of arrogance. Humility has big ears and a small mouth. Pride and doctrinally pride in particular says, this is right. 
that's all that matters. Send on the tweet. That's all that matters is what I say, what I know, even if I got a verse to back it up. But love is very different because here's what he says. When some people eat meat through their former association with idols, when they eat food as really offered to an idol, they think when they're eating that meat, it really is to the God and they really are in communion with that God. And so Paul is seeking to create some understanding and some empathy with other people. He's not saying they're right. He's not saying, and they're doctrinally right. He's saying, look, you, no, you're right. But consider these other people and where they are. It troubles their conscience, it says. And being weak, it is defiled. They believe that these gods are real. And because of their background, when they eat that meat, it takes them back to all that was involved before. And they feel like they are in worship of that God at that point because their conscience believes that. They're not secure in their conscience in the one Lord, one Jesus, uh, one God, no other gods. They're, not, they're, not, they're, 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 they're new believers. They're coming out of a life of paganism. They've never known anything like this. And so when they eat, their conscience is weak. They believe that they're doing something wrong. And the Bible says that if you do something not from faith that you believe is wrong, it is sin. Even if it's not morally a sin, for you it is sin. And so you're leading these people to sin is what he says. Now the weak have a misunderstanding because the meat is neutral. Look at the next verse, verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no better off if we do not eat and no better if we do. Okay, so look, think about them. When they eat this way, it's a sin for them. Their conscience is defiled. Now, he steps in, parenthetically. Uh, again, the meat is neutral. You're not better off if you eat it. You're not better off if you don't eat it. And this is leading him to say, by the way, so you ought to be able to abstain. You're not going to be more, you're not going to be harmed by eating it. That's one side of it. Yeah, let's just tell the weak, you're not harmed by eating. Come on. What's the problem? No, you're not benefited by eating either. So you could abstain as quickly as they could start eating. That's where he's going to go with love. And then he says, verse 9, take care that this right of yours, yes, you can eat meat. Now he's going to come back in chapter 10 and say there's some context where it would always be wrong to eat meat offered to idols, like if it's an act of worship. But, but you do have the right to eat meat, which is neutral. It's neutral substance. You're, you're, you do have the right. Actually, it's a blessing. It's provided by God. You do have the right. But take care, verse 9, that somehow your right does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, so be careful that the exercise of your freedom, the exercise of this right which you do have, does not trip somebody else up so that they fall in sin. Don't, don't have the exercise of your rights. That's all that matters and cause someone else to sin. That's not love. And he gives a specific scenario of how this could work out. Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? I'll follow your example. Verse 11. And so by your knowledge, you're free to do it, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. It's a very clear picture that he paints. 
You're, you know that no idols are real, but when you're doing this, someone else is going to see you and they're going to be who struggles and believes that all meat, it's evil. It takes them back to where they were. They believe that the God is real and that they're interacting with that God in some way, uh, revering that God in some way, doing something in connection with that God, and, it, and they, that's wrong, and so they sin. So be careful what you do. Here's how one Right. One commentator described the situation. I think this is very compelling. This explains what would have been going on in the mind of the week. The problem he's facing is that several of the Christians in Corinth, before their conversion, which after all was quite recent, had been regular worshipers in the shrines of the idols. They knew what went on there. The dark sense of mystery and fear. The sense that in feasting at the God's table, you were really eating and drinking the God himself, taking his life to be your own. And then the drink, the sense of casting off moral restraint, the girls and the boys waiting round back to do whatever you wanted in return for a little extra payment to the God. And once you had shared in that dark but powerful world on a regular basis, perhaps for many years, it would be difficult in your memory and imagination to separate part of it from the whole thing. Now that you had become a Christian, you would feel you had been rescued from the world of darkness and brought out into the light. True worship wasn't like that. Truly human living wasn't that. You had escaped. You were free. And looking back, you wouldn't be able to split that old world up into different bits. You wouldn't be able to say that this bit was all right while that bit was wicked. The very smell of the meat that you used to eat in the temple with the priests chanting and the drink and the prostitutes waiting for you would bring it all back. It would be natural and right that your conscience could not, without some years of teaching, prayer, and wise help, cope with any element of the old package deal. Even if Christian friends who perhaps hadn't had that background had no problem with one aspect of it, eating meat. And Paul, concerned, deeply concerned for such people, he's concerned for such people, he doesn't want their consciences troubled. You may, he says, have the right to eat meat offered to idols. He may even be referring to the right that Roman citizens in Corinth possessed to attend great imperial festivities. But you must be careful in the case that this right of yours leads you to do things that will lure the weak brother or sister back into the old life. The language of rights needs to be held up to the light and the light in which we can clearly see what it should and shouldn't mean is the light of love. It's certainly possible that the weak here are the poor as well. And the reason that is, is because the poor would have only had meat ever in their life in a religious festival like just described. That's the only time they would have ever had meat was when they were worshiping at an idol's temple. The rich could buy meat at the marketplace and eat it at home, eat it in various other contexts. And so they would have been able to discern that meat has multiple functions, but the poor would have only had meat in one function. And they, they wouldn't have had the multi, multifaceted experience of shopping in the marketplace and preparing it and this kind of thing. So the smell of the meat would have only brought back a vision of 
chanting and darkness and prostitution for worship, etc. It starts with a pretty simple question, doesn't it? Hey, we all know what's the big problem, eating meat. Seriously, there's no gods. It starts with a very simple question. But it ends up in verse 12 by Paul saying, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's discernment. They start with something. This is an issue of freedom, right? And where he ends up is you are sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. How did we get there? Because they had knowledge without love. They had rights without any consideration of how it might affect someone else who thought differently, whose story and history was different than their own. And because they weren't motivated by love, he said, you could destroy them. You could destroy them. These are people that Jesus died for and loves. And, and you, you show no care for them. And when you sin against his people, you sin against him. I wonder if that's a category we live with. When I sin against his people, that's his language, you sin against Christ. Now, before we too quickly say, I've never eaten meat and caused someone who believed that that was from their background of idol worship. Okay, I get it. In Frisco, Texas right now, this isn't the most, uh, you know, uh, common practice. If we were perhaps in some places in Asia or Africa with new Christians, this could be very real in some places. This illustration, go, oh yeah, okay, there's a one-to-one -one correlation. For us, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation. But if we can back up a little bit and say, this is what he says, sinning against your brothers, you sin against Christ. That's very real. So do you think about that? Do you live with that? That when I sin against my brother, when I sin against another Christian through my speech, to them or behind their back, when I sin against a Christian brother or sister with my anger, with my neglect, with just being aloof and uncaring, by my selfishness, my rudeness, by not sharing what I have that would meet their needs, my selfishness, when I, when I live that kind of life and I sin against someone, take something from a Christian brother or sister, something tangible or take their reputation by my speech, by what I post on social media, by what I tell others. When I sin against a brother or sister, I'm sinning against Christ. Here's how serious it is. Verse 13, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. For me and my lifestyle, I can't imagine a greater sacrifice of love than becoming vegetarian. That's unthinkable to me. <laughs> Frankly, it's unthinkable. Um, but Paul says, I become a veg, and if you're a vegetarian, I love you. Please don't, I don't want to be the arrogant strong here. And well, you're not weak. You're probably more godly than I am. Forget it. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is that he's saying, what he's saying is I'll make any sacrifice necessary out of love for God's people. And in the next chapter, he's going to say, that's why I don't get a paycheck. That's his next chapter. I don't get a paycheck because I love God's people. And he's going to explain, I have a right to get a paycheck, but I don't. And he's going to walk us through that next week. How do we apply this? Are there any parallel modern issues? It'd be really difficult to strictly find a parallel issue to this in our culture, in Western culture. Um, I think there are some parallel issues when we come to chapter 10. I think there are some parallel issues on religious liberty in, in uh, Romans 14 and 15 um, that are directly parallel, I think. 
Uh, this one, it's difficult to find something that's strictly parallel because there's three issues that need to happen for it to be strictly parallel. For there to be a strict parallel, number one, there has to be an issue that's morally neutral, morally inconsequential. Meat, can you eat meat? Morally neutral. Number two, there has to be some people that find it morally wrong in the church or in Christianity. Some people have to find it morally wrong. It's morally neutral. Some people have to find it morally wrong. Number three, and the third point, is that if some people engage in this behavior, so if some people do this, other people will be tempted to join in and do something that they personally consider sinful, and thus they will sin against their conscience. So those principles may be transferable, even if there's no meat offered to idols in temples around here. Those principles become a little bit more relatable, a morally neutral issue. Uh, some people find it morally objectionable. Some people practice it, Christians, and other Christians think it's wrong, but because some practice, they're going to be tempted to be drawn in, and it's going to take them back to their old life. It's going to take them back to something they don't feel free to do so that they sin. It's called the stumbling block principle. Now, the stumbling block principle in popular evangelical Christianity is often wrongly applied. Oh, yeah, I don't want to be a stumbling block. He said in there, you're a stumbling block to them. I don't want to be a stumbling block. To be a stumbling block, it has to fulfill those three issues. So the way stumbling block is often talked about today is it usually means that some people don't like what some other Christians are doing. And so those other Christians choose not to do it so they won't offend these people that don't like what those people are doing. But that's not the issue here. It has nothing to do with anybody being offended by what someone else does. Oh, you listen to that kind of music, that offends me. Okay, I, won't, I don't want to offend you. That, that, that is irrelevant to this passage. Nobody's getting offended, so I can't do this or that because someone's getting offended. In that situation, usually the person who doesn't like what the other Christian is doing would never do that. That's the whole issue. I would never see that. I would never eat that. I would never drink that. I would never say that. I would never pick the item. I would never wear that. So I would never do that. So by your doing it, I'm just offended, but that, I'm never tempted to do it and go back to my old life. That's where the stumbling block principle is normally applied, wrongly applied to this passage. So where's the stumbling block commonly? I just gave you a list of them where I think it's commonly applied. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, where you go, uh, what you watch, what you listen to. Those oftentimes are gray issues in our culture. But one that's commonly applied here, at least in the Bible Belt, would be alcohol. In Europe, it would never be applied in the Christian church, at least when I've been in Europe and all the Europeans I've met, Christian or non-Christian, drink uh, like a lot. I've been like... Pa <laughs> I went to England. I remember I was talking to some pastors. Yeah, we do our pastors meeting in the pub. And, uh, you know, so they're actually doing elders meeting and, and the adult beverages are flowing. And that's just part of their culture. Just don't, don't even think anything about that. Godly people, not alcoholic. So it doesn't apply. But here it does apply. In the Bible belt, and we're, the Bible belt is, is like thinner. The, the belt is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. It's almost non-existent. The, the buckle's already gone. It's almost gone in our culture. But there's still some Bible belt culture here. So does this meet the standards? Number one, is alcohol morally neutral? Yes. The substance of alcohol is morally neutral. 
Jesus drank it. Jesus creates it at a wine, uh, at a wedding. Uh, Old Testament says it's actually a gift from God. And yet there's a lot of warnings about alcohol as well in the Bible. But it's a morally neutral substance. Drunkenness is a sin and is not morally neutral. But the liquid itself, a fermented beverage, is morally neutral. Number two, do some persons find it morally wrong? Yes. Some people, uh, some Christians fundamentally find it uh, objectionable completely, teetotaling and think it is wrong to drink. There are schools that you could go to, to Bible colleges or seminaries where you'd have to actually sign, maybe some denominations, I don't know, or churches, but you'd have to sign an agreement that you will not drink to be trained for ministry. So there are places where even today that would be common. So there are some people that find it for sure morally wrong. Number three, if some people drink who feel uh, it's okay, will some people who think it's morally wrong be tempted to come in and drink it, drink as well, go back to their former life, sin, because them it's morally wrong. So they're going to follow the example of someone who's free to do it and drink themselves and sin. Is that happen? No, not typically. It's usually not the issue that happens typically. But where it might apply would be if we consider someone's background. Look at verse 7. But some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. This is where love comes in. What is someone's former association with something? If I don't have the same association, if I don't agree with the same association, it doesn't matter. That's important for me to consider in love through former association. Some, for some people, the idol meat was inseparable from idol worship. The idol meat was inseparable from a life uh, of debauchery, a life of, of sinning before God. So if someone, alcohol for them from their background in their own life, if it was something that is inseparable from uh, a life-dominating sin, if it was inseparable from alcoholism, if their background is alcoholic, if it's inseparable from a life that they used to live, that when alcohol for me meant sleeping, my inhibitions went down, so I slept around, it meant I was angry and got in fights, it meant I drive drunk and went to jail, it meant that it was my dominating life force. Every day I relied upon alcohol to get me through. It was my God, it was my substitute uh, for God, it was what I Im imbibed to clear my conscience, to be at rest, to relax. I couldn't even be myself without alcohol. It was my life. And there's people in the room for whom that's their story, by the way. Maybe numbers of people here today, that's their story. And may, and may many more people with that story walk in this door and meet Jesus Christ. So for the person for whom former association with idols... That is very real to them, and to get, go back there, they can't separate it from the former world, and to go back there could very easily lead them off the wagon spiritually to go back away from Christ, then love, I believe in that situation, not, I don't, you know, like my background says it's wrong and I don't like it when you do it. No, that, that's not biblical. But the first one, who says that, that, that really affected their life and it could really hinder them, then in that case, I think the application of this text is that love says, 
I'll never drink a glass of wine again if it means it would harm that person or to help them. It means that I wouldn't bring that person into a context where other people who felt free and didn't struggle in the same way are drinking. That, that all gets put away when that person is with us. We would never, you would never want to draw that person into a context where they could drink again, where, they would, where, where they, it would go be wrong for them again, uh, where they would go back to the life they were again, where because of someone's freedom, they would say, well, maybe it is okay. I know I'm a Christian. That was my old life, but maybe it's not such a big deal after all, and I don't think so. Well, I know it's wrong, but for me, and it's, well, they're confused and they drink. Or they think maybe they have the conviction it's wrong for everyone. Now it's so bad for me, I now believe it's wrong for everyone. And so for them to drink a sip would be a sin against their conscience, given their background. So love just means that I am aware of other people. I'm aware of their background. I'm aware of how things affect them. And if they have a strict moral scruple in an area because it would lead them in a drastic way away from the Lord, even if I'm strong and say, well, that's not an issue for me, I still will lovingly, that's a matter of consideration. It's not like, what do you mean? Show me in the Bible where it says it's a sin to drink. Show me in the Bible. I can show you. Here's Jesus drinking wine, okay? Here is a festival where you spent your tithe on strong drink in the Old Testament. You spent your tithe on strong drink. I got that verse for you. So what's up? I might have some verses, but there is no love that is destroying someone else's life to lead them into that kind of a place. So... The typical view of stumbling block, I don't think has anything to do with this passage. But that view of stumbling block, and you could go a lot, there'd be other issues that could lead that way as well. The primary principle of this passage that's relatable to all of us is the principle of love. One author says the real concern of this passage needs a regular hearing in the church. Everything one does that affects relationships within the body of Christ should have care for brothers and sisters as its primary motivation. That's it. See, God is building a community so that I don't ever live with absolute freedom. I don't ever live with absolute freedom. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, without any consideration to anyone else because I'm gospel-centered and I've got grace and it just does not matter. That, that is never the case. Our, we always live in consideration of others. And at times, love will mean that I limit my freedom in some area. And by the way, I might need to listen to the other person because I might be wrong about my freedom. What I'm calling freedom, Scripture might call sin in some areas. So I need to be listening for that reason as well. Our culture values, and we're not talking about human rights freedoms here, by the way, because that, that's a different category. We should be valuing that, fighting for that. We're not talking about human rights freedoms here. Uh, we're talking about liberties in the gospel. And so our culture values my rights. Nobody can tell me what to do. My privileges, my freedoms, my liberties. Scripture values love. We value what can I do. Nobody's telling me what to do. Scripture values love. And so the strong in this case, the biblical knowledge, biblically knowledgeable, there's two categories. It's right or it's wrong. This passage introduces a third category which must govern our ethics and always governs our ethics and community. It's permissible, but I'm willing to abstain by love. That's another category. There's right, there's wrong, there's permissible, but I will, out of love, do something else. 
because I'm driven by what is good for someone else. Now, that doesn't mean that the weakest conscience in the church drives the ethics and the standards for the whole church and that everybody bows down in some kind of, you know, uh, absurdly legalistic fashion so that all practices must go to the weakest conscience in the room. But this is talking about issues that are that are easily withdrawn from in the context of others. It's easy to say, I'm not going to go down to the temple of the other God for this reason or that reason, because it could affect another person. Love means I'll sacrifice my freedom for the good of another. Let's extend that. I'll sacrifice my time for the good of another. I'll sacrifice my energy for the good of another. I'll sacrifice my money for the good of another. I'll sacrifice my preferences, my advancement, my reputation, I will sacrifice this hot take on social media that I've just got to get out there, which will get everybody's attention for love of others. I'll even sacrifice that, anything for others. After all, isn't that what Jesus does? Jesus lays down his rights for us. Someone said the most entitled person in history laid down his rights for us. He humbled himself. The scripture says that he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to, but he took the form of a servant. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus lays down everything out of his love for us. And we must be affected by that love. We don't start with let's just model that love. We start with we've got to be affected by that love. He says in verse 3, anyone who loves God, he is known by God. That real knowledge stems from the gospel, what Christ has done for us, dying for our sins, being raised for us, and receiving that and living in the good of that. Really living in the good of what Christ has done for us, believing in that love, being shaped by that love, getting to know that Christ and walking with him so that my motives and my attitudes, I'm not just putting a checklist of what can I do and what can't I do. That's where permissible, and I may do it or I may not do it, comes into play because we are close to Christ. We're walking with Christ. The interest of Jesus are our interests. We're thinking about how he has responded to us. We're thinking about what he did for his enemies to make us his friends. We're thinking about how he was patient, patient with me. And if I'm in an area of freedom, can I be patient with someone who has a weak conscience, just as Christ was patient with me. Love is seeking to do good for others. That's the abiding principle that comes from the idle meat debate. And that's an abiding principle that is very relevant for all of us today in the church. Now, there's a, certainly a place to teach the weak And we try to do that every week by talking about the gospel. There's a place to inform their conscience so that they get freedom. But that may take time for some people. Love starts with understanding where are they. And because of their previous associations, patiently, tenderly, listening, understanding, caring just as Jesus was with us. The strong say, this is the truth, deal with it. The loving seek to understand where someone else is coming from. What is their background? And this is so important because we're a truth church. We're a church that values truth. Paul values truth. He's not minimizing knowledge. We value knowledge. We've just spent whatever it is, 45 minutes, walking through a passage about idol meat. 
I didn't just give you three tips to a happy life. I didn't just tell you a 45-minute story that brought, I I just like went through and talked about idol meat. Okay, so we're a truth church. We're doctrinally bent. We, 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 We attract folks oftentimes that love sound doctrine, that are big on the Bible, that want to learn the Bible, but we got to beware of the danger that knowledge without love puffs up. And Bible people, of which I am and you are. Bible people, theologically driven, theologically careful people can be the most unloving people out there sometimes because knowledge puffs up apart from love, divorced from practical love and consideration and care for another person. It doesn't matter how much you know. If you are a hearer and not a doer of the word, James says, you deceive yourself. You think you're mature. You think you're godly. You're looking out at everybody else. How could they think that? Did you see what she posted on Facebook? That's the most immature, the most biblically, spiritually, theologically immature thing I've ever seen, except the comments I'm making right now, by the way, which are far more immature in God's eyes because you have knowledge, but it's not being applied to love. There's no compassion. There's no patience. That's the problem at Corinth. We got Bible people saying, just deal with it. Come on. And then we got weak people saying, oh, no, I'm going back into idolatry. I'm, I'm worshiping demons. Oh, they're freaking out. And other people, who cares? I'm free. That's the problem. That's a divided church because they're governed by what they know and not how they love. It's not one or the other. It's knowledge that leads to loving others. That's what it is. It's both and. It shows up how we relate to other people, how we speak to them, how we speak about them. Am I considering, this is a question, is my, am I considering others' background? Do I know their story? Do I even care? Is my priority being right and being known for being right? Or is my priority loving other people with the true knowledge of Scripture that I have? Am I patient with others? He didn't use the word patient here, but I, I just see a lot of impatience in my own life and in this passage here. Are we patient with other people? Listen, we're all a work in progress. I want you to give me that space. I'm a work in progress. So do I relate with others in the same way? They're they're a work in progress. He says, if you think you know something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You should be knowing more and more and more and growing, but you think you've arrived. You think you know it is what he's saying. Is that me? Is that me? Am I willing to give up whatever necessary to build up God's people? As our city becomes, and this is a good thing, increasingly more multicultural and we see people coming from varied backgrounds and coming to Christ, we want to be attuned to listen to questions and to listen to concerns and to understand people's experiences, to learn from them, to seek to, to, seek to benefit from some things we could learn from someone who has a different perspective, but also in an issue where we are biblically true with the gospel And someone's background makes that hard to grasp. We want to be patient with people who are seeking to know the Lord. These weak people are seeking to do the right thing. They're seeking to do the right thing. And the aroma of a church that's knowledge church, notebook church, doctrine church, I know everything apart from love. 
That is an aroma that is offensive to any skeptic, any inquirer, any new Christian, any struggling Christian, any Christian that is weak in their faith, any Christian that's like hot one day and cold the next, anyone that we're not sure if they're a Christian or not, but they're leaning in, they want to do right. Knowledge church without love is one of the most offensive things in the world to people like that. But knowledge church where we can hold up the Bible and say, this is what scripture says, and we're going to stand on this. We're not compromising this. This is what scripture says, but we're applying it with compassion. And by the way, those of us who are teaching this and leading with this, we're the greatest of sinners. So we can relate with anyone. We should be able to relate with anyone in their sin, anyone in their confusion, anyone in their brokenness. And it starts with seeing my brokenness before the Lord. It starts with seeing how he loved me so that I can love others. So this becomes more and more in a less church society, in a more multicultural society, in a society where the church apparently is moving more to the outskirts, the edges, the marginalization of culture. The more that happens, man, the church is going to have to wake up with truth, yes, but Jesus brought grace and truth. We're going to have to relate in a, in a caring, loving way that will even say, I'll lay down my rights for the benefit of another Christian. I would give up meat. I still, I'm all week, I've been there. I can't get over that past the steak. I can't get over that. I'm going to have a burger and meditate on it. I can't get over this. He would just give it up for people. People, imagine what a church community would be like in a community where everyone in the church is built on the gospel and is mature enough to say, this is not about me. This is about Christ and his church. This is about other people. This is about building people up and not me being right. This is about caring for people. I'm more concerned and understanding with helping others and see them grow than I am getting my point across. Imagine a church where everyone's words were governed by that, where everyone's social media interaction was gathered by that. It's more important to me to represent Christ's love to people than to be right or thought of as right. Imagine what kind of impact would be in that environment where everybody says, I'm doing more listening than talking. It's more important to me to understand than seek to be understood. A community where correct doctrine, not hear what I'm saying here, where correct doctrine is not paramount, but correct doctrine that leads to a life of love is paramount. Those are two different things. Statement of faith, biblical doctrine, absolutely. But it's forming us to look more like Jesus rather than puffed up individuals who know it all. What about a church like that? The kind, that kind of community is compelling to people. It's compelling to those who are weak and struggling, like me and like you. It's compelling because it represents Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus, the only time Jesus is really terse and short with people is with the know-it-all right people who have no time for anybody. He's most direct with that, the Pharisees. But the weak people, like here, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's a friend. Those people all want to be with Jesus. And so we want to be a church where all those people, us, and those who aren't here, the skeptic, the new believer, the poor, the marginalized, the outsider, the person with a difficult background, the person with a, a really intense idolatrous background like these individuals, the person who's insecure, the person uh, who struggles to just get up and be here on Sunday, where that person feels the love of the Lord, the welcome of the Lord. Us coming alongside and helping in patience, with patience and support, helping them along. 
not I'm right. Get with the program. Come on. We don't have time for, we don't have time for lollygagging around here. Get with it. You probably don't say that, but our attitudes, impatience, the roll of the eyes, the, oh my goodness, the whispering. Did you hear what she said? Did you see what he did? Did you hear, did you see what she wore? Did you see what they did over here? Did you see what, did you hear what they went to? Did you, you know, just instead of all that stuff. the driver with zero compromise of truth zero compromise of truth but love grace and truth let's pray you've been listening to a message from grace church for more information visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org dot